0: on it. you want to have that out so that you can follow along. We're in Revelation chapter 15 today. We'll be looking at the first four verses. This is a unique uh, passage as those who were in my Sunday school class learned. Uh, We've been dealing with the topic of judgment in the last few chapters and that topic is going to continue in the next several chapters, and right in the middle of this extended section on uh, judgment and God's wrath, you have a song. And so one of the things that I'm going to ask you to think about as we go through this today is the connection between judgment and worship, which are two things that we don't normally put together, but clearly God does in his word. to his word now. Revelation chapter 15, the first four verses. Please listen carefully as this is the word of God. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. And as we look at this vision of worship in heaven, remind us of why we worship, remind us how. We are to worship, and remind us especially of who we worship. Lord, help us to see that Jesus is the Lamb of God, as well as the Lion of Judah. Do this for each of us this morning, in the majestic name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. A few years ago, uh, for our 25th anniversary, Joanne and I had the privilege of touring parts of Italy, and it was an amazing trip we went to some truly fascinating places and saw really wonderful things. In fact, every day we were there was filled with more fascinating places and more wonderful things. And most of the time, we walked to go see these fascinating places and these wonderful things. And we got up the next day and we walked. And we went to the next city And we walked. And nearing the end of our trip, we were pretty tired. We'd walked around Rome, Pisa, Florence, Siena, San Gimignano, and Venice. And now we were headed to Milan. And we were exhausted. And we were out of clean clothes. And our feet were killing us. And somewhere along the way, someone had warned us about the dreaded ABC disease, which apparently is very common among tourists in Italy. Apparently, the ABC disease comes from England because everyone who mentioned it had a British accent. And of course, ABC stands for another bloody cathedral. (laughs) See, Italy is full of churches. Most of them are dead, and half of them serve primarily as museums. And every city in Italy has a domo or a cathedral, and they're beautiful. And they have some of the world's greatest paintings and tile work and frescoes and tapestries and sculptures and carvings and on and on and on. And after a while, it all starts to blend together. And we were tired and dirty and more sleep seemed like a really good idea. But now we're in Milan and guess what? We were going to walk to Il Domo di Milano, the Cathedral of Milan, And I have to confess, I didn't really want to go. And I really didn't want to walk there. And fortunately, a small bus came and picked us up and took us most of the way there. We finally got there and we got out of the bus and we walked down a few streets, because they never drop you off right next to it. It's all, this is as close as we can get. It's only a mile. And we walked through a galleria of ridiculously overpriced fashion design houses. And we finally came out on the other side, and there was the Cathedral of Milan. And it was magnificent. It was easily the most beautiful cathedral I've ever seen. And we walked up to the center of the great uh, plaza in front of the cathedral, and we just stared at it, totally awestruck. And we just stood there trying to take it all in and all of the exhaustion and all of the aching feet and all of the worry and disappointment and fear and tiredness vanished. The burden of weariness just lifted and we found ourselves simply overwhelmed with the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty of that great house of worship. We spent quite a while there just basking in the atmosphere of that place, totally enthralled and amazed and overcome with wonder. And the Domo of Milan transformed us. A few hours earlier, we simply wanted to get off our feet and rest. But suddenly, we were very glad to be there. Well, in a very small way, Revelation 15 is something like that. What we have here is the overturning of weariness and sadness and confusion and fear in the arrival of the final victory and triumph of the saints of God. We see what their faith has got them now that they're in heaven, and we hear them joyfully and loudly praising God, and life for the true believer in the devil's world has been confusing and frustrating and disappointing and wearying and discouraging. And that's what we've seen as we've gone through chapters 12, 13, and 14. And we have this picture that that's, we've worked through of the weariness, the difficulty of life on this earth. And that's fresh in our minds from the last three chapters. But John's gaze is now directed back from the difficulty of life on earth back to heaven. And the first thing that's put in front of us is a sign of judgment a sign of judgment, and that's the first blank there in your outline, verse one. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And John will repeat that phrase, great and amazing, some versions have great and marvelous, Uh, and he's gonna repeat that in the worship hymn, which will come in verses three and four. But first he uses great and amazing to describe Another sign in heaven. It's another sign because we've already seen a couple of signs in chapter 12. The first one was referring to the woman clothed with the sun, which pictures the people of God. And the other sign was the great red dragon with seven uh, seven heads and ten horns, picturing the devil as the adversary of the people of God. But here the sign is distinguished as great and amazing. Amazing. Something large, massive, transcendent, awe-inspiring, wondrous, marvelous. And John introduces us to another series of judgments. But this series, unlike the others, is called The Last. We have the seals and the trumpets. And we're going to be introduced when we get to uh, verse 5, the bowls. The seven angels with the seven plagues are holding seven bowls of wrath. And it'll be the culmination of God's judgments. Now, John likes this word sign. It's one of the key words, not just for the book of Revelation, but for everything John has written. Throughout the Gospel of John and the epistles of John, he uses this a lot, he uses it more than any other writer. And if you think about the Gospel of John, he used the word signs uh, to talk about Jesus' miracles. They are signs that pointed us on to something else. Remember changing the water into wine at Cana of Galilee. It's a pointer that helps those people, the onlookers, to see beyond the sign to ultimate reality in Christ. Signs are not an end to themselves, but they lead us to something beyond themselves. And John actually uses the word in Revelation 13 in the context of the second beast or the false prophet says that he performs signs that serve to deceive the people into worshiping the beast. But here, the clear focus is that the sign of the seven angels with the seven plagues preparing to pour out the bowls of God's wrath serve as a sign to point us to the Lord God Almighty. Now, for believers, it points us to worshiping God for his justice and his faithfulness in vindicating his great name among his people. For unbelievers, the sign serves as a warning that God is a God of judgment. And his warning is actually an act of great mercy to point everyone to the crucified Christ, the only refuge from judgment. Most of John's language in Revelation is taken from the Old Testament. We've talked about that a number of times. And it's the same here in Revelation 15. Uh, We have this uh, whole chapter, and particularly the song that we're going to get to, is shaped by various Old Testament passages. But chief among them has to be the story of the Exodus with God's people in bondage, the Lord delivering his suffering people uh, through plagues of judgment on Egypt that took them across the Red Sea to freedom. And John intends to make the connection that with the first exodus as a forerunner for the ultimate exodus, which we receive through the cross. And as God's wrath fell on Egypt for their animosity towards God and his people, his wrath will ultimately fall globally upon a world that is antagonistic towards Christ and towards the redeemed. And to refer to the judgments here as plagues intentionally reminds us of the plagues of Egypt. There, as well as here, they're sign to the world of God's power in judgment and to God's people of his mercy and deliverance. There's a lot of Exodus parallels in these verses. To refer to them as the last plagues indicates that the bulls will take us up to the last judgment. These plagues are anticipations of eternal judgment and have as their purpose not only to punish wickedness but to drive men to repentance. The seven bulls complete God's warnings to an unrepentant world. Now the background of verse two is found in Exodus chapter 14. That's the story of the parting of the Red Sea. And by God's great mercy, the Red Sea separated God's people from the object of his wrath, the Egyptians. A lot of times we think about it just in terms of getting them to freedom, but there's a very deliberate separation with the Red Sea so that God's people would be on one side and they would be protected. We see there uh, that the Egyptians are judged and destroyed while the Israelites receive mercy and are saved. If you look at Exodus chapter 14, the last two verses, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so the people feared the Lord And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then at the beginning, the very next verse, Exodus 15, verse 1, worship takes place through the song of Moses. It was our responsive reading this morning. They sang to the Lord of his greatness and strength in judging the Egyptians and delivering them by his strong hand. So we see the order of things both in Exodus and Revelation. And so after the sign of judgment comes the sign of worship. Sign of worship. Look at verse 2. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. The scene moves from Sinai to heaven from the Red Sea to a sea of glass mingled with fire with the glass symbolizing God's transcendent purity. We've already seen that once in Revelation and fire symbolizing divine judgment. And who are these people standing beside the sea and worshiping? It's pictured, they're pictured holding harps of God. And it's those who've been victorious over the beast. The repetition of the phrase those who had conquered the beast stresses the effectiveness of Christ's conquering work because, after all, how are they victorious over the beast? Well, we, he, John's already told us that. Back in Revelation 12, it said, and they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Here are the redeemed, the saints, who had endured much at the hand of the beast to whom was allowed Revelation 13 to make war on the saints and to conquer them. But in here is the great message that underlines uh, John's description in Revelation. The beast cannot overcome those who are eternally secure through the death of Christ. The events on earth often obscure the reality in heaven. The beast, that figure that represents the world in opposition uh, to God, appears to defeat the saints. And yet the reality is, the heavenly reality, is that through the blood of Christ, the saints have been victorious over the beast and its image and the number of its name. No aspect of the beast's evil is left. The victory through Christ will be complete. And we're going to see that in greater description as we go through. Throughout the book, John has been preparing us, preparing his readers for this, that they will face immense difficulties, and they've already faced some immense difficulties, and things are going to get worse. They're in the midst of a great battle. Perhaps you've seen some of the great war photography. Photographs of soldiers during and after a battle, grimy, disheveled ashen faces, sunken eyes, exhausted. And these are often the soldiers who won the battle. The losers lie face down in the mud, or they're tramping off to captivity in despair. And that's sort of the picture you have of all the saints that have been in the battle. And they're tired and they're weary and they're exhausted and they're dirty and they're bloody and they're trying to hold up. And then suddenly there's a sea of glass mingled with fire. And there are the four living creatures and the angels and above and beyond them is the glory of God. And the air is no longer foul and rotten smelling but it's perfectly pure and fresh. And you feel the vital uh, energy of eternity in your soul. The new life of pure goodness pulsing in your heart. And suddenly the wounds and the weariness of battle is forgotten. And a song rises and stirs the voice, and every faithful believer, his or her struggle behind them, finds himself among a great company, singing for joy, lost in wonder, love, and praise. And it is this prospect that is being set before us as we begin to read of the outpouring of God's wrath, bowl after bowl, in chapter 16, we're just given a little reminder that that's not what it's all about. That's not the end of the story. God will not leave the wicked and the rebellious world to prosper, His judgments will fall upon it. They are His megaphone to arrest the rebellion of man before it's too late before the day of salvation draws to an end. Yes, you'll be caught up in the trouble. As man's rebellion grows in fury, as he turns against God's children because he can't reach God himself, life for the believer will become increasingly hard and difficult. But John's saying, hang on, brothers and sisters, don't despair. Heaven and the glory of God await. i got to ask you a question. I want you to ask this question of yourself and answer it honestly. Does this prospect of seeing the glory of God and lifting your heart in the praise of his glorious name, does that prospect really lift you up? Does it galvanize you? Does it strengthen you and embolden you to fight the good fight while you're here on earth? Does it make you want to prove yourself faithful as long as you're in this world? I'm pretty sure that for many Christians, they just don't feel that way, or at least not very much. And yes, they know that maybe they ought to feel that way, but the anticipation of beholding uh, the face of Jesus, basking in the glory of God, just doesn't thrill us all that much. When we're struggling to surmount our temptations, when we face the prospect of suffering in some way for our loyalty to Jesus, We don't immediately think of the glory of God that awaits us and take hope from that prospect. I think C.S. Lewis said it best, and I've quoted this before. He put it famously in his book, The Weight of Glory. He said, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Isn't that our problem, yours and mine? When the Bible holds before us the prospect of actually sharing in the divine nature and of glorifying in the majesty of God, we fear that heaven will be too dull. You know, there won't be romance or sex or marriage or family or perhaps some of the other pleasures of this world. And the differences we imagine between heaven and earth are to heaven's disadvantage. But I want you to think with me for a moment about this. Who gave us those desires that are so powerful and which draw our longing? Is it not God himself? He made us to desire sexual fulfillment. He made us to love good food. He made us to find joy in listening to music or in looking at beautiful things. He made us to desire the love of others and to find great fulfillment and pleasure in giving love to others. God made us for this. He worked those desires into our nature, and he worked their fulfillment into our world, and he gave us great pleasures in that fulfillment. All of that is from him. And can any reasonable person, still less any Christian, believe that a God who knows pleasure and fulfillment so perfectly Who knows how to create the desire for it, who knows how to satisfy those desires? Can anyone say that in a perfect world, a world where God's love and presence and power are no longer restricted or qualified in any way, that there'll be less fulfillment, less satisfaction, less pleasure? Logically, it's inconceivable. And isn't it true, isn't it obvious that none of our desires for happiness and goodness and fulfillment that we currently have and we can't escape from, none of them are ever really satisfied in this world. I mean, you can take the happiest, most loving marriage in the world, and sure, there are moments of ecstasy of love from time to time, but only from time to time. You talk to any husband and wife, and they'll tell you, though, they never stop loving one another. They're often distracted by other things. They're often weary and bowed down by just the daily routine of life, and they often don't rejoice in one another as they know they should. What would life be like if you were always as happy as the happiest moment you've ever experienced? And what could be the happiest moment that you could possibly imagine? And what does that have to do with judgment in this text? See, the continued use of Exodus language helps us to grasp in a very tangible way this heavenly scene of worship. Can you imagine what it must have been like as the Israelites stood on the seashore after crossing over on dry land? And then watching Pharaoh's army drown. They stood in in awe of the power and might of the Lord. They had feared that Pharaoh's reach would snatch them back into bondage. But God promised to deliver them, and he did. And now they're standing on the far shore of the Red Sea, looking at thousands of drowned dead Egyptians, and they worshiped the judgment of God against sin and sinners led the people of God to sing a song of glory. Verses 3 and 4, a song of glory. Look at what it says. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. In Exodus, we have the Red Sea, dead Egyptians, and worshiping Israel. But here in Revelation... We have a greater scene found in heaven. We have a sea of glass. We have bowls of wrath, and we have a worshiping church. And those facing the persecution of the world, even facing death by the hand of the enemies of the gospel, now stand victorious over the beast. But it's important to note that we don't hear them speaking of how great they are, or how well they did, or how creative they got while under persecution. The one thing that is noticeably absent from the song is there's no mention of those who were victorious over the beast. They didn't sing about themselves, but about the Lord our God. They only had praise for the God who delivered them. Dr. Derek Thomas has written, this is always the way of biblical worship, to begin with God and to end with God. Worship is impoverished, and become so much idolatry whenever God is not at the center. And in continuing the comparison, another writer said, As Israel once stood on the banks of the Red Sea and celebrated God's liberating act of the exodus, the church will stand on the shore of the heavenly sea and sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. And as before, when John was about to describe the judgments of the Lord descending on the earth, He showed us, he gave us a glimpse of the triumphant saints in heaven. Sort of, it looks bad right now, but look what's coming. And the darkness and grimness of the world situation, especially for the saints of God who are in it, shouldn't blind us to the eventual victory. John sees the saints who had resisted the beast, who refused to succumb to his threats, who refused to take upon themselves Uh, his mark, and under terrible persecution, refused to compromise their faith in Christ. They are now triumphant in heaven. This company is the same as the 144,000 of Revelation 7 and 14. In both of those texts, the company of saints is singing praise to God, and in chapter 14, they're playing their harps. All of you non-musicians, You get to heaven, you become musicians and you can sing, but you're still here on earth so that's not working out so well right now. The song they sing is described as the song of Moses and the Lamb is similar to many uh, songs of praise in the Old Testament, but especially the two songs of Moses in Exodus 15 and in Deuteronomy 32. In fact, virtually every phrase of this song is drawn from the Old Testament. In fact, I learned a new word here. One commentator says, it is a cento of quotations from many parts of the Old Testament. I had to look that up. A cento is a literary patchwork composed of parts taken from various places and placed together to make a new work. And we're reminded in this way You know, how the faith of the saints has been the same from the beginning, but now is being brought together and made into something new. Jesus made a point of saying, and Paul argued, uh, Moses' faith was the faith of the New Testament believer. The saints, before and after the incarnation, worshipped the same God and gave glory to him for the same salvation. And though the song is brief, it is filled with rich themes, to help us consider how we are to worship the Lord God. The language extols the Lord. Great and amazing are your deeds. John uses the word great quite a lot in Revelation. And here he gives it additional significance since he considers the grandeur of God's works. Well, what he mentions deeds, ways, and acts. What deeds, ways, and acts are we talking about in this song? We're talking about the judgment of God. That's the context from chapters 12, 13, and 14, and following in 16, 17, and 18. And he says, they're not small, they're not insignificant, they're not unimportant. They're great, majestic, grand, large, amazing. Which translates the term, uh, as I said, it just means marvelous, wondrous, awesome. It is that which causes us to just stop and gaze in wonder. Now, there's multiple themes uh, identified in this song, and I've listed some of those in the outline. First, we worship by extolling God's actions. Great and amazing are your deeds, just and true are your ways, righteous are your acts. Deeds and ways and acts imply divine activity. Your deeds can be His work of creation or redemption or protection, or preservation, or supplying our needs, or sustaining the world. In this context, though, I think we can assume that the overcoming saints are thinking of the work of redemption through Jesus Christ. They conquered by the blood of the Lamb. And they've already filled their praises with that theme, and they'll continue to fill their praises with that theme of redemption through Jesus Christ. We'll see that again when we get to chapter 19. So, the question is Do you praise God for his works? And not just his works that affect you personally, but that affect all of history. Second, we read Just and true are your ways. Ways is, again, God's providential governing of all the affairs of uh, man and the execution of his judgments. In this, we think of those details of how God accomplishes his eternal purpose, maintains eternal justice. Do you praise the Lord for his wise rule, for the details that he works out in your life, even when you don't fully understand what God is doing? It's easy to praise God when we've got it all figured out. It's hard to praise God when we don't understand what's happening. We praise God for His actions. Second, we praise uh, God. We worship by extolling His sovereignty. It says, "O Lord God the Almighty, O King of the Nations." First titles commonly used of the Lord throughout the Bible. It identifies His sovereign rule as Creator and Governor. Almighty is actually a compound word that expresses his authority, might, strength, and power over all. In other words, God's omnipotence. It emphasizes his sovereign rule by the exercise of his power. And King of the Nation shows us his sovereign rule is not limited to the church, but it extends to all people in all places throughout all time. You express your gratitude for God's sovereign power. We forget those kind of things. We're too busy praying to get through the day or that we feel better. But this song is about God's actions and God's sovereignty. Third, we extol God's character. Just and true, you alone are holy and righteous. And just or righteousness is primarily a legal term. God's ways are not unpredictable as though he has no moral framework or no laws governing his actions. He acts in righteousness. His divine government displays justice in every way. He's always consistent with his character. And the word for holy means perfect Purity conveys the idea he's consciously pure in everything that he does, that he is true, assures us that he never changes. The theological term is he is immutable. It means he never changes. He's faithful as the only holy one. Do we praise God? Do we glory in God for his holiness and his righteousness and his faithfulness? Fourth, we worship by extolling his worthiness, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? All nations will come and worship you. As creator and ruler, God alone is worthy to be praised by all nations. The universal scope of his reign, the displays of his grace and mercy, should serve as motivation for men and women to worship him. Granted, because of the foolishness of men's hearts, all men and women don't worship him. At least not yet, anyway. But we're assured throughout Revelation and the rest of Scripture that even the most obstinate rebel will one day acknowledge the sovereignty of God and bow before Him, even when facing eternal judgment. Do we praise the Lord that He alone is worthy of worship? Do you praise Him that one day all the nations will bow before Him? And then fifth, we worship by extolling His judgments. Your righteous acts have been revealed. This phrase, righteous acts, refers to God's judicial actions. They're twofold. His righteousness is revealed in judging all those who are marked by the beast, all who don't know him through Christ and who don't worship him. And we're to praise the Lord for judging unbelievers. Yes, we're supposed to uh, pray for his mercy towards them, that he would call them to himself, that they would come to Christ in faith and repentance. But if they rebel, if they reject him, were to praise him, that he is just in judging them. Furthermore, his righteous judgment has been revealed at the cross where Jesus bore the full weight of his eternal justice through his death. We worship the Lord for the Lamb of God who was slain and who purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Does the cross motivate you to worship? And finally, this vision of the future includes a picture of the nation streaming to the city of God to worship their Savior. And the idea, of course, is that not all people will be saved. Revelation still has a lot to say about the judgment of the unrepentant, but God's salvation will reach every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Earlier I asked you, what would life be like if you were, as, if you were always as happy as your happiest moment? What would be the happiest moment that you could possibly imagine? Imagine. And I ask because I think that moment comes when judgment and worship come together. Let me explain. A lion is admirable for its ferocious strength and its you know, imperial appearance, its kingly, regal appearance. A lamb Is admirable for its meekness, its servant-like provision of wool for our clothing. But even more admirable is when we get a lion-like lamb or a lamb-like lion. What makes Christ glorious, as Jonathan Edwards observed over 250 years ago, he said this. We don't talk like this anymore, but I thought this was awesome. He said that Christ has... An admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Use that at school. Watch your English teacher faint. An admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. The glory of Christ isn't a simple thing. It's a coming together in one person of extremely different qualities. We see in Revelation chapter 5. You remember that? John was there and he heard... One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There's the triumphant lion-like Christ ready to unroll the scroll of history. And it says, and he turned, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. One of the elders said, behold the lion, and he turned and he saw a lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So the lion is a lamb, an animal that is weak and harmless and lowly, easily preyed upon, sheared naked for clothes and killed for food. And Christ is that lamb like lion. The lion of Judah conquered because he was willing to act the part of a lamb. He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday like a king on the way to a throne, and he went out of Jerusalem on Good Friday like a lamb on the way to the slaughter. He drove out the robbers from the temple like a lion devouring his prey, and at the end of the week he gave his majestic neck to the knife, and they slaughtered the lamb, or they slaughtered the lion of Judah like a sacrificial lamb. So Christ is both a lamb like lion and a lion like lamb. That is his glory. That is the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Now imagine with me for a moment. We're at the zoo. Everybody likes to go to the zoo. And we're looking at the animals. And you reach down and you pet the head of a small lamb. And as you do, the lamb lifts its head and licks your hand. And you think, that's nice. And you move on. You know, you go uh, on to see the other animals. And then suddenly somebody yells, look out. And you turn around to see what the commotion is. But it's too late. Because you turn around and standing right in front of you is the biggest, fiercest lion that you have ever seen. And he has escaped from his cage. And if he so chooses, your lunch. There's no way to escape. And slowly he moves towards you, opening his jaws wider and wider. And then he gets right up to you and reaches out and licks your hand and stands peacefully at your side. And you breathe a huge sigh of relief. Let me ask you a question. Which lick would mean more to you? The lick of the lion or the lick of the lamb? Obviously, it would be the lion. Why? Because the lion could crush you in its jaws just as easily as lick your hand, but the lamb doesn't have that option. And The primary reason people are not astonished and exuberant at the forgiveness of the lamb of God is they have little or no sense of the lion's raging fury against their sins. Until we tremble on death row, we will not dance at the granting of our pardon. Facing the wrath of God and receiving his mercy, I think that will be the most glorious day of your life. Remember that you need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the reflection of your might and your mercy in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the strength of his lion-like power and the tenderness of his lamb-like meekness. We take heart from his incomparable combination of excellencies. It reassures us that there is none like him. He is not a mere man like the others. Lord, grant us in our brash indifference to tremble before the Lion of Judah and to humble ourselves under his fierce holiness. Lord, also grant us in our brokenness and fear to gather courage from the lion-like lamb. Lord, how we need the whole Christ. Open our eyes to see the fullness of his excellence. Remove the lopsided and distorted images of your Son. Now weaken our worship and lame our obedience. May the power of the lion and the love of the Lamb make our faith in Christ unshakable. So deliver us from small dreams and timid ventures and halting plans. Embolden us, strengthen us. Make us love with a fierce and humble love. Let us share the confidence of the Lion of Judah that gave him the will to die like a lamb and to rise in everlasting joy. And in it all, grant that all might see the glory of Christ and that you might be honored through him. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.